Good evening, and thank you very much for joining, the, joining us this evening at the Boston Athenaeum. I want to begin uh, by welcoming all of you and thanking the Boston Athenaeum for co-hosting this evening's uh, conversations with the American School. Uh, we're extremely grateful in the spirit of Thanksgiving. We offer our gratitude to all the members, uh, to our hosts, and to the organizing committee this evening. I want to welcome Dr. John Camp, who's here with us today. Uh, who has dug and excavated for 50 years at the Athenian Agora. Please give him a round of applause. <laughs> this chair here will soon be filled by Nick Burns, who is coming in as we speak, <laughs> and we give him a, a warm uh, welcome as he enters uh, today, the former ambassador of the United States to Greece, and Sarah Roos who is a wonderful student and a student at the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. Please give her a warm welcome. We're going to hear a few. We're going to hear from her as well. My name is George Orfanakos. I'm the executive director of the American School. And on behalf of the trustees that are here this evening, it's my great privilege uh, to not only welcome you, but actually to lay the themelia, the foundation, for our conversation this evening. You see, we have been taking this conversation with the American school across the country, and we're talking a little bit about the work of the school and what it is that we, what we do. Uh, so tonight, before we actually begin our conversation, what I wanted to do was just tell you a little bit about uh, basically who we are, what we do, and why we do it. But we're going to flip this on its head a little bit. Hi, Nick. Welcome. There you go. <laughs> Um, we're going to flip it on its head. We're going to start with why we do it, because that's what's really important. And our why is we are an American institution with a global mission. We keep Greece's past alive so that it can shape the world's tomorrow. Now, why Greece? And for this, we look to a man named Edward Dodwell, who said beautifully, almost every rock, every river is haunted by the shadows of the mighty dead. Every portion of the soil appears to team with historical recollections. And what's amazing is that the American School of Classical Studies at Athens has been preserving, promoting, educating, unearthing, exploring, deciphering for 135 years. We have to applaud that. I mean, <laughs> it's very exciting. I'm going to show you just a little bit about who the school, who, what, who and what the school is now. So we were established in 1881, and I'm going to go fairly quickly. And we are today the preeminent center for the study of, Greek, of the Greek world from antiquity to the present day. We were established by core founding institutions. You can see the top of the list there. And we have currently over 194 member institutions, institutions with over 400 managing committee members that help govern our um, academic programs. These are just some of them. And in your own backyard, here in Boston and beyond, uh, you can see the institutions that are part of our family. The school was established by Philhellenes, by men and women who had a passion and love for Greece and knew that it could shape tomorrow. I won't read all of them, but people like Andrew Carnegie, Arthur Vining Davis, John D. Rockefeller Jr., William Cal Caleb Loring, Elizabeth Whitehead, Charles Williams, Hetty Goldman, 
was, the was an archaeologist who opened the field for women and from the Goldman Sachs family. Annie Smith Peck was the first woman to attend the school in 1885, one of the greatest mountaineers of all time. It's a remarkable history. So that's, that's where we came from. But what do we do? Well, we have three areas, research, training, and educational programming. Our research, we have two main libraries. So we established the Blegan Library in 1888, has over 102,000 volumes. The centerpiece of our campus is the Yanadios Library, which was established in 1926, and of which Nick Burns is a member of our Board of Overseers. It has over 126,000 vol uh, volumes, books, archives, manuscripts, and wonderful works of art. That's an inside look at our main room. We have 1,600 linear feet. And in 1992, we actually established the Malcolm Wiener Laboratory for Archaeological Science. This is a project currently going on at Falaron right now. And we have an extraordinary publications department as well. And finally, training. We spend time. Uh, training and in, in excavations. So in 1896, we began the excavations at Corinth where the Apostle Paul preached. And we train our, our, our young archaeologists. And since that time, we have discovered over 134,000 plans, drawings, images, and objects in, the Corinth, in, in Corinth. In 1931, excavations began at the Athenian Agora. How many of you have visited the Agora? John? <laughs> Okay, so night of just a few years, right? And, uh, and there is the Stoa of Atlas that was built by John D. Rockefeller Jr. And we've discovered there over 191,161 artifacts. And tonight, the reason for our talk is we've also discovered wonderful artifacts on democracy. And we're going to have a little insight into that. But then in addition to these sites, there are school-affiliated excavations and surveys past and present across across Greece, and you can see the different sites here. If you were able to, the New York Times featured a recent discovery uh, at Pylos, and we were very proud of, the, of what was discovered there. Even though uh, John Camp feels otherwise, he said he dug 50 feet from where, <laughs> where they found everything in 1960, but he's a legendary figure and has much to be proud of. Um, and our students, and as we'll hear from Sarah, uh, travel a great distance, and 34 out of 52 of them are gold medal winners uh, from the, the Archaeological Institute of America. And finally, we have exciting educational programming. This is uh, conferences that take place in Coates and Hall. We digitize our materials. We've created uh, online um, applications, a program called IDIG, which is uh, now being used by the German, the, Brit the, the German Archaeological Institute, the British schools um, in Italy. It's a remarkable, um, a mar remarkable program created in the Agora by one of uh, John Camp's students. And finally, we do exciting collaborations, and this is the next generation. Uh, right now, we were working with a company called Sayark at Corinth, where they came in and they, they measured the ground, and they, they, they wanted to protect these beautiful sites, and they were afraid that they will be destroyed, you know, some by natural disaster and some, um, as we've seen in other parts of the world, uh, by force. And they come and they digitize, and they, they bring to life in a new and exciting way for us. And this is something that was done at, at Corinth, which is really exciting. 
And the next phase of this is actually to create uh, augmented reality and three-dimensional imaging. So it's very exciting, the work that's being done, and uh, we're excited as the American School of Classical Studies at Athens to be part of it, to help shape tomorrow. So with those words, I want to introduce Sarah and ask her to uh, just say a couple words and give a reflection about her time at the school and then to introduce our main speakers. Sarah, thank you very much. Here we go. Um, you can... Okay, and is this microphone working? Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. So as George mentioned, I'm Sarah Rouse. I'm finishing my PhD in classical archaeology this year at Harvard, and I was lucky to spend the last two years living and working in Athens at the American School. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to share with you all a little bit about my personal experience at the school, since it's really no exaggeration to say that that, that experience was truly transformative for me. And it's also fitting, I think, that I should have this opportunity here at the Boston Athenaeum and in the context of conversations on democracy, since it was in fact John Adams, one of the first members of this institution and of course one of the chief architects of the American democracy, who is ultimately responsible for my interest in classical studies. And here are some archival images of me paying homage when I first moved to Boston. So I'm not making this up. I was very excited to see that he's with us in this room tonight on the wall over there as well. This is great. So you see, one of my early passions was the history of the revolutionary era. And I was continually intrigued by all of the Latin that I found sprinkled liberally throughout Adams's letters and writings, and by the stories that he would tell later on in his life about his struggles to learn Latin when he was a boy. Well, I thought to myself, if Latin was something that was hard for John Adams, but which he later learned to love, it's probably a challenge I should try for myself. So to make a long story short, Latin led to Greek, Greek led to archaeology, and Greek archaeology led me to the American School. And of course, I learned an unbelievable amount about Greek archaeology in two years at the school, probably more, in fact, than in the rest of my graduate studies combined. Don't tell my professors here that. Uh, but even more than the things I learned, it's the people that I met and the experiences that we had together that made my time at the school so transformative. And I think anyone who has worked at the Blagan or Gennadius libraries or eaten meals or stayed in Loring Hall or even just tagged along for a day on one of the school trips will tell you the same thing that the people you meet at the school very quickly morph from colleagues to friends to family. And on that note, I wanted to share this um, image from our Thanksgiving celebration at the school last year. So this is a tradition every year. Um, and here you see our director, Jim Wright, carving one of, I think, 16 turkeys that the school imported from Italy last year. Uh, <laughs> apparently, there aren't enough turkeys in all of Greece for us. <laughs> So this is one of the most memorable events each year, and it's great for members of the school to get to share this great American tradition with Greek colleagues and school staff. But another great thing about living at the school is the chance to experience Greek traditions and holidays. So here are a few of our dedicated members, young and old, helping to roast two whole lambs in preparation for the school's Easter feast this past spring. This is another annual tradition. Some of us at the school also participated in a much more ancient Greek event, that is the marathon, or I should say the marathon, from marathon to Athens and finishing in the ancient Olympic Stadium. And we had a huge contingent of school supporters camped out with clever signs like that one uh, in the second to last mile, and it made a huge difference, I can tell you. Um, and I think it's safe to say that the only 
marathon more epic than this one is the one right here in Boston, which I will start training for tomorrow. So that's exciting. Um, but lest I leave you with the impression that all we do at the school is run around and eat delicious food, I wanted to also say a little bit about the impact the school has had on my research. So my work focuses on social memory. That is, the ideas that a community or a group of people has about their collective past and about how that past relates to their present and their future. And I address social memory by looking specifically at how Athenians in antiquity created or preserved memories of an event by reusing material objects in conspicuous and meaningful ways. So one nice example of this is the North Acropolis Wall, which you see here. So in 480 BC, near the end of the Persian Wars, the Persians sacked the Acropolis and destroyed the temples that were there. So these were the temples that were later replaced by the Parthenon. And the Athenians, after they recovered the city, took the destroyed column drums and the entablature from these temples, which you can see at the left and the right, and they used them in a very striking and deliberate arrangement in a new fortification wall along the north side. And it was obvious to anyone looking up from the city below that this wall was made out of a temple. And so the, the wall acted as a war memorial of sorts, making sure that later Athenians remembered what the Persian barbarians had done to their temples. And this message was particularly visible from the Agora, so this public square devoted to the needs of democracy, which we'll hear much more about soon. And this is where this photo is taken from. To make this a little more real for you for a second, imagine, if you will, that a horde of barbarous Yankees fans has descended on the great Bostonian temple of Fenway Park. And they tore it down. Like the Athenians, we would probably want to make sure that our descendants remembered this atrocity. Right? And one way we might do that would be to re-erect the old and broken green monster within a rebuilt modern stadium. We couldn't really imagine baseball in Boston without the Green Monster, right? So this gives you some sort of idea of, of the kinds of reuse I'm investigating in Athens. But back to reality. Um, these sorts of research questions depend a lot on the context of monuments within a site and within the city. And so it was absolutely invaluable for me to actually be in Athens doing firsthand research, which was sometimes an athletic endeavor in and of itself. Um, but as part of the school community in Athens, I had great opportunities to discuss my ideas with scholars who were at the school or just passing through, and also to learn from leading experts based in Athens. So here, here's a picture of our group inside the Parthenon. That's pretty cool, right there. And we're listening to Manolis Corres, the former director of the restoration project of the Parthenon, and certainly the single most knowledgeable person about the Parthenon alive today. So this was fantastic, and I could show you many other similar situations. So in sum, if you're the sort of person who gets excited by a wall full of inscribed prices, an old dirty storage jar buried in the ground, or even a newly discovered tomb that some archaeologists are claiming might have held the remains of Alexander the Great's best friend, the American School will give you the opportunity to study that wall up close, climb right inside that storage jar, and dig out its contents, and get as close a glimpse as possible, as anyone can anyway, of the newest finds. And more than that, the school gives you the opportunity to do all these things in the company of other dedicated and enthusiastic scholars. And now, speaking both of leading experts and of dedicated and enthusiastic scholars, it is my great pleasure to introduce the first of our speakers tonight on the theme of conversations on democracy. This is a theme in its ancient and modern instantiations to which both our speakers tonight have dedicated their lives. 
So speaking first is John Camp. John is the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Professor of Classics at Randolph-Macon College, the director of the American School's Athenian Agora excavations, and truly an American School legend. He began working at the Agora in 1966, served as the school's Mellon professor, the professor in charge, for more than a decade, from 1985 to 96, and just last year was awarded the Aristea Award, an award created to honor those who have done the most to support the school's mission in teaching, research, archeological exploration, and publication. And John has done all of these things magnificently, serving as a true model for the countless students and budding scholars who have come through the school and the Agora excavations over the years. And as George mentioned, John has now spent almost 50 years working at the heart of the Athenian democracy, more than the great Pericles himself ever did, and so I can think of no one better to begin our conversations on democracy. Please join me in welcoming John Camp. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is just part of the Agra excavations. Uh, when you go there, we have tours that last five minutes. We have tours that last eight hours. Uh, and we just have a few minutes this evening, and we're going to work on just one theme, uh, which is some aspects of the Athenian democracy and how it compares uh, to uh, the American version. Uh, this is a game we get to play every four years, of course, when we gear up for an election in this country, uh, and both the similarities and the differences are of some interest. Uh, for those of you who may not know it, though it sounded like or looked like uh, a lot of hands were up, uh, this is what the uh, Agra excavations looks like today, uh, bounded on the west by the uh, Theseian Temple, as it's called, uh, by our museum here, on the north by modern Hadrian Street, and on the south by the, Ag by the Areopagus. Uh, what you're seeing is about 25 acres of excavated land. It's taken us uh, 85 years to get this far. Partially that's because archaeological work uh, is slow, uh, but <clears throat> uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, in addition to that, when we began, pretty much the entire area you see on the screen was covered with modern buildings. And so to excavate what we have here, uh, we have taken out 350 modern houses in order to get to what lies beneath. Uh, when you get down there, the ruins are not particularly well preserved, uh, and uh, they are uh, pretty shabby in their construction to begin with. Uh, but in fact, one of the things that makes it so important to us uh, is the fact that this is where democracy was first invented and practiced. Let me say right at the beginning, uh, that uh, Athenian democracy was not perfect. Just so I know people will tell me that. So I will admit that it was a slave society. I will admit uh, that they did not let women vote. Uh, and I will admit that a huge percentage of the population was made up of Greek free men, but not Athenian citizens who came to Athens from other cities. So it was restricted in that respect uh, but it was otherwise uh, surprisingly uh, full uh, in terms of those who were participatory members. Uh, and uh, we will concern ourselves a bit with how 
the government was managed to make sure uh, that all citizens uh, had a role to play. Uh, when you come into Athens in antiquity, when you came in, here is part of the city wall. There is the main city gate, the Dipolon Gate. Here, of course, is the Acropolis with its sanctuary uh, to Athena. And to get from the gate uh, to the sanctuary, you have this long processional way uh, about a kilometer in length. And halfway along it, you see the big open square. Think away this building and that building. They're Roman. They got there later. And you have a big open square surrounded by larger buildings. Uh, and that is what the Agora is. It's a public square, and it was multifunctional. You could go down there on a given day, and you might find a theatrical performance going on. You could go down the next day, and there would be an election. The day after that, there might be military drill. <clears throat> and the day after that, it might have been set up as a marketplace. Uh, it's a place where you could get all the citizens together when you needed to for a wide variety of purposes. So not surprisingly, around the sides of that square uh, is the best place to put the public buildings of the city, whatever you need to run the government. Uh, and those are the buildings uh, that we have been excavating uh, for the past decades. Uh, the Athenian government, not unlike our own, was tripartite. There was an executive branch, uh, there was a legislative branch, uh, and there was a judiciary. Uh, and here we have, uh, there is a building from the executive branch that is uh, for one of the high magistrates of Athens, the King Archon. He was responsible for all religious matters and the laws. Not far away uh, was the Senate uh, chamber where 500 senators were picked to serve just for one year. Uh, because things have not changed since antiquity, except for the technology. Uh, right next to it, this round building was the Senate dining chamber where the senators were fed at public expense during their year in office. And it used to seem to me uh, that this was a, an odd system to allot your Senate, uh, but more and more uh, I think of it less as a joke and as a serious possibility. Uh, if you look at our present way of doing things, uh, and you consider how much money and time and influence we waste electing a Congress of 500 men, uh, and then you look at the results, uh, it seems to me difficult to believe that we could do any worse than if we picked 500 names out of a hat. We would have 30 wackos on the left, we would have 30 wackos on the right, and in between would be 440 people trying to make responsible decisions uh, in a way that it seems to me we don't manage today. So here is one aspect of antiquity we have not followed, uh, and I think that's too bad. Uh, these guys were just appointed for one year, uh, and they only served for one year. The term limits were built in, uh, and they had a fairly successful form of government. And then finally over here, uh, you have buildings that are identified as law courts, uh, and that takes care of the judiciary. Uh, the Athenians would never have a jury of 12 jurors. The minimum Athenian jury is 201 men, uh, and an average one was 501. So to run the court system took a lot uh, of Athenians. I'll mention it in passing. It's not part of tonight's talk or consideration. This is where we're digging now, 
And this big, long, colonnaded building here, which we call in Greek architecture a stoa, you can think of as the world's first public art museum. On the walls of that building in about 460 BC were hung a series of panel paintings uh, showing Athenian military exploits, both mythological and historical. And this is one of the first instances where this kind of art wasn't in the king's palace, wasn't in the royal tomb, wasn't in the part of the temple that you weren't, weren't allowed to get to. Here it's right on the edge of the public square, and everybody is encouraged to go in through the open colonnade uh, to look at the paintings, uh, which were there for almost 900 years. So we're pursuing that, but uh, that's democratic in the sense that that is probably the most public building uh, of ancient Athens. Uh, but we want to talk first, or I want to talk first about the legal system. We talked about the 200 jurors, the 500 jurors, and I never understood how the American system worked until 2000 AD. And then once the Supreme Court said, George Bush is president, there was no higher authority in the land that we could appeal to to change that decision. Our courts uh, have the final say. The, the executive can decree anything it wants. The legislative branch can vote anything it wants. Uh, but it's going to show up in the courts to determine, one, is it legal, is it constitutional, and two, how are we going to interpret it? Same was true in antiquity, but again, it was 200-plus jurors. And to show how serious the Athenians were about this system, uh, we have the evidence that we're looking at here. Uh, this is a big, large allotment machine. It is designed to determine which jurors are going to sit in which courts on which days. And you see a series of rows of slots here, uh, and identification tags would be set into each one of those uh, for potential jurors. And along the side here, you see cuttings for a long hollow cylinder, excuse me, a long closed cylinder uh, of bronze, which would have a funnel at the top and a crank at the bottom. And they would pour into that a bunch of black and white marbles. And they would stack up there in random order. You turned a crank at the bottom, and out would come either a black ball or a white ball. If it was a white ball, uh, the first jurors in the first row all the way across were picked for, picked for jury duty that day. If it was a black ball, they were eliminated. So there was no way to know who was going to sit on Athenian jury until this allotment procedure had taken place. There were 6,000 potential jurors, so to bribe an Athenian jury, you had to bribe 6,000 men. And as I say, this seems to me a good way to see how important the legal system was to the Athenians. And here you can see one of the black balls, but you can also see some of these bronze tags, which would have gone into the allotment machine to tell who was going to serve as a juror that day or not. Uh, the case, uh, all Athenian, the other thing they would never have stood for was the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, every Athenian case took one day to adjudicate. You started at dawn, you stopped at sunset. And to make sure everybody had an equal chance, uh, you had devices like this. This is the only surviving example uh, of a water clock or a clepsydra. And you can see uh, in the model here, based on it, uh, there's an overflow hole at the top, 
an outlet hole at the bottom, a painted inscription telling us which tribe controlled this clock, and the two X's uh, telling us it holds two coeys of water. Uh, and basically, you fill it up to the overflow hole, uh, you pull the plug, uh, and the speaker speaks until time literally runs out. Uh, this one runs for about six minutes, so you can't read a speech of Demosthenes against it. This must be for the second rebuttal of a minor divorce case. But nonetheless, it is a surviving example of something that all the courts had to make sure that everybody had an equal amount of time for uh, the defense or for the prosecution. Uh, and then uh, what you see here uh, is how they voted. And it was secret ballot. If you were a juror, you were given two of these round disks with a central axle. Uh, there's an inscription on it that says Psephos Demosia, public vote or public ballot. Uh, you would be given one with a solid axle, one with a pierced axle, so that you could hold them thumb and forefinger in each hand, and people could not see which way you were voting. You threw one into the pile that counted, one into the discard pile, and a verdict was arrived at. Uh, and <clears throat> the reason we think we know where the courts are is because six of these discs were found in this informal box of terracotta uh, deep in our excavations dating to about 400 BC and a very good indication uh, that the, uh, <clears throat> with the location of at least one of the Athenian law courts. Uh, the other system that we want to consider briefly in terms of democracy is the one you see represented here. These are broken pieces of Greek pottery, and they are known in Greek as ostraca, one ostracon, two ostraca. <clears throat> what makes these guys interesting is you'll see that virtually every one carries a scratched inscription on it. And this is the Athenian version of term limits. Once every year, all the Athenians gathered in the Agora, and a simple yes or no vote was taken. Is anybody a threat to the democracy? Is anybody a problem to the state? Uh, if a simple majority voted yes, they all went away. Two months later, they came back, and on the second occasion in the Agora, they brought with them an inscribed piece of pottery on which they had scratched the name of the man they thought represented a threat to the democracy. The man with the most votes lost, and he was exiled for 10 years. So imagine if we had in our system an annual opportunity to vote somebody outside the Beltway for, for 10 years, uh, how this might uh, make the Athenian political system work uh, a little bit better. But here, too, we have failed to follow uh, our predecessors uh, at our cost. Uh, here are two ostraca, and this is interesting because if you look at these two, uh, they are both cast against Xanthippus, uh, who's the son of Araphrone. And Xanthippus himself is the father of Pericles. And he was thrown out of town in 484 3 BC. We know the exact date that he went, and these are two uh, from his ostracism. Uh, and we have other examples of this because what you might be able to notice right away uh, is that the handwriting looks sort of the same on both of them. Uh, and we have a group of 190 ostraca for Themistocles, and they're written by only 13 people. So we have here Mayor Daly, Chicago at work, the cemetery voting, you any way you like, which is either 
encouraging or discouraging, depending on your, whether the glass is half full or half empty. Uh, but suffice it to say, I, I once made the mistake. I was uh, taking Barbara Bush around, and I once showed her these and mentioned hanging chads, and she did not think it was funny at all <laughs> to consider the possible parallels. Uh, and here we have two of the great events uh, that were determined by ostracism. Uh, this one here, I think, we haven't been able to prove it, but I think here it's Xanthippus, the father of Pericles, against Themistocles, uh, the man who persuaded the Athenians to build a fleet and turn them into a naval power. Uh, they were opponents in 484-3 BC, and the main topic just at that time was whether or not to build a fleet. Uh, and uh, Xanthippus was thrown out of town, and Themistocles wasn't, and the fleet was built. One other thing I want to point out that's interesting is you can learn a great deal from literary texts, but sometimes it's these informal documents that help us a lot. Every single literary text in the world spells his name Themistocles, with a tau in that second position. 94% of the ostraca written by Athenians themselves spell it as you see it here with the theta instead of a tau there. I do not know how the literary sources change, but it looks like in contemporary Athens when Themistocles was alive, uh, however you pronounce that first th, you should pronounce the second syllable the same way, Themistocles. And the misspellings uh, and rearrangements of the orthography uh, tell us things that we can't learn from anywhere else. Here you have the great contest between Pericles himself against a man called Thucydides, not to be confused with the historian. This was a politician, and he was bitterly opposed to the construction of the Parthenon because it was wasting funds that did not belong to the Athenians, had been taken from their allies in order to fight against the Persians. And it was a huge controversial decision uh, when the, court, the uh, discussion could not be resolved. They had an ostracism. And this shows the flaw of ostracism. If number one is powerful enough, this is a great way to get rid of number two. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Thucydides was thrown out of town, and the so-called Periclean building program, including the Parthenon, was allowed to go on. But it was actually a referendum uh, on the policies of Pericles. Uh, and those are just some things to think about the Athenian democracy. Uh, there are other things we could talk about. What I want to just mention and show you here uh, is the influence the Athenians have had uh, ever since then. And it begins uh, in the Roman period. This is a bust of the Emperor Hadrian, the most powerful man in the world from 117 to 138 AD. And this is his official portrait. And this is one example of about a half a dozen that we know of. And what's interesting is how the most important uh, individual in the entire world is happy to have himself shown. Because you'll see right here, uh, Athena with her owl over here, her snake over here, being crowned by two victories. Here's Athena here. And what you want to see or notice is she is standing on the wolf of Rome uh, with Romulus and Remus below it. You cannot ask for a stronger visual image of the relationship between Greece and the Roman Emperor, Empire, uh, with Athena triumphant 
uh, over the wolf of Rome. And this, of course, has been true from there to the Renaissance, from Renaissance to Europe, uh, from Europe uh, to us. The line uh, is surprisingly easy to follow. Uh, and I will show you here just another example, this one in the Istanbul Museum. Here's Hadrian with a captive. And there you have Athena again with her Nikai, her victories. Down here, the wolf of Rome and Romulus and Remus. Uh, that is why we are here. Uh, that is what uh, the American school works on, our uh, combined uh, shared history as it comes to us, uh, starting with Athens. Thank you very much. My next job is to interview, interview, excuse me, introduce the next speaker. Uh, you have uh, a version of his CV uh, in front of you, so I don't have to linger over that. I will tell you something that not everybody knows, and that is uh, there are about two dozen embassies in Europe, and three of them go to professionals. The, the uh, ambassador to NATO, the ambassador to Moscow, and the ambassador to Greece, uh, which is to say, uh, it's obviously that the reasons are clear. It's right near the Balkans. It's right near the Middle East. It's right near Africa. It is incredibly strategic for all sorts of interests of the American democracy. Uh, and I mention that by way of saying uh, that in Athens, we get very, very good ambassadors indeed. Uh, and it's been mentioned over and over and over again. I certainly want to be reminded of again that I've been doing this for 50 years. Uh, but that does mean I have worked with more than 10 ambassadors, and I promise you the very best one we have ever had representing the United States, certainly in Greece and probably uh, in many places of the world, uh, is Nick Burns. He is a great expert on all aspects of foreign policy, and he was an outstanding ambassador to Greece, uh, and he is now going to continue the discussion, the relationships between Athens, Greece, uh, and our own times. Thank you very much. John, thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be at the Athenaeum. Pleasure to be here in praise of the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. As John said, I had the great, great privilege to be um, the American ambassador in Greece between 1997 and 2001. When I arrived there, I was under the impression that the relationship between the two countries centered first and foremost on the two governments. And I had 532 people with me uh, at that embassy. It's one of our largest embassies in that part of Europe. And we were devoted to a good relationship with the Greek government. I thought that's what the job was. By the time I left in 2001, I had concluded something else that while the relationship between the two governments is of course critical for trade, for war and peace, for the fact that Greece is a member of the NATO alliance, that Greece is a member of the European Union, that we have an abiding relationship with it, that it was Bostonians like Samuel Ridley Howe who went to the support of the Greek people in their war of independence against the Turks nearly 200 years ago. That's all important. But what's primarily important, and the strongest barns are those of the American institutions that have been in Greece far longer than our embassies. We have the great good fortune to have the American School of Classical Studies 
in Greece since 1881, the American College of Greece in Greece since the 1890s, Anatolia College and the American Farm School, both over 100 years old. And I concluded in my last year that it was those institutions that really tied the Greek and American peoples together. And that part of the function of the embassy, of our American embassy, would be simply to support them. Because they were doing the long-lasting work of connecting one people to another. And we're here tonight to praise one of those institutions, the American School of Classical Studies. And I couldn't possibly improve on these magnificent PowerPoint presentations, so I don't have one <laughs> tonight. Uh, but I will say this. I want to say a word about my friend, and he's a very good and close friend, John Camp. He's been at the school for 50 years. He's a son of this uh, region, is educated here at Harvard College. Uh, he has contributed, I think, more than any American I know uh, to these relations between the Greek and American peoples, to have spent 50 years of his life digging out the story of democracy which is what John and I agreed when we met yesterday we would talk about today, is a far greater contribution than any of us on the governmental side could have made. I've had the enormous good fortune to be with John on many occasions. When, you get to, when you're ambassador, you get to go to the dig, and my daughter was an intern there, and I used to go down to visit John and his colleagues frequently, and I've been back frequently to see what they've done. They're literally revealing and rediscovering the foundations of Greece's democracy, the buildings, but as John has told you, now deciphering how that democracy worked. And of course, the larger story is how it inspires us and informs our own democratic system. And the American school is doing this in Athens at the Agora, in Corinth, uh, as George told you, in ancient Corinth, uh, in Nemea, where Professor Steve Miller of Berkeley literally has put on a modern recreation of the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games were held in four spots in ancient Greece. My wife Libby and I had uh, the pleasure of running in those games, the recreated games. Uh, I did not win in the 100 meters, but we ran in our Greek hytons. We ran barefooted. We ran together with all sorts of people from Greek life. And you just felt as you walked into that stadium that the American archaeologists have dug out over the last century at Nemea, you just felt that you are somehow connected back to the heartland of democracy, and that was the Greek state. Uh, and it was, a it was an enormous thrill for all of us who've had the pleasure of doing that. John's contribution, though, is singular. Um, 50 years at that site. Uh, he and I used to have lunch at a very good Sudlaki joint, which is no more because he has, he has requisitioned those buildings. <laughs> he has taken them down. He's gone through the Byzantine Empire deep into the heart of ancient Athens on those 25 acres. When President Clinton came to Greece on an official state visit at a very turbulent time in our relationship with the Greeks during the Kosovo War in November of 1999, uh, apart from the president's speech to the Greek people and meeting the Greek president and the prime minister and dealing with a very difficult situation, he wanted two hours free. And that was early one morning to go up to the Acropolis and to see it and to learn about it, and then to go down to the Agora and to reflect on the importance of our democratic roots. And there was only one person who could possibly give him that tour, and it was John Camp, who gave Bill and Chelsea Clinton that tour. And the Clintons have been back, and the Bushes have been there. And he represents, for me, 
um, the finest of the American tradition in Greece. So please join me in giving him a round of applause for his 50 years in Greece. So I'm under the water clock. Uh, so this is not going to be a long set of remarks. In addition to praising the American school and asking all of you to learn more about it and to support us in what we're trying to do, I serve on the board of the Gennadius Library, which is the great library attached to the American school. I wanted to say a few things about modern Greece because these are such dramatic times for the Greek people. And when you think about it, the Greeks are facing with the European peoples Germany, Netherlands, Italy, Spain, France, and other countries, three great crises. There's the Euro debt crisis of the last five years. There is the Syrian refugee crisis of the last five to six months. And there's an existential crisis about what the European Union will become because of these two crises. The first one is well known for a lot of people, like the Barakases in this room, who follow Greek politics and who understand the modern reality of Greece, and that is that Greece is broke. And that for the past five years, there's been a debate in Greek society and also between the European Union and the Greeks, led by Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, should Greece remain a member of the European Union. Uh, Greece is in a state of, um, of great debt, 390 billion euro in debt to its creditors, the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the European Union. It's in debt because it spent more than it had, because it didn't collect the taxes that it should have, because it allowed corruption to be unbridled in modern Greek life, because the euphoria of joining the Eurozone, and I was there, and it was a great moment for the Greeks to become part of the Eurozone in 1999 and 2000, to be accepted as a true European country after all the trials of Greek life over the last century. The fact that Greece has been invaded by all of its neighbors was invaded in the 20th century. That Greece was, of course, had to fight a brutal war after the First World War uh, with a new Turkish state, leading to uh, population transfers of more than two million people. Refugees coming from Anatolia, refugees coming from uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, into Greece, back after the First World War. Then to endure a fascist state in the 1930s, to endure a German occupation that was as tough, as unyielding, and as brutal in Greece as in any place in Europe. The forced departure of the Jewish population, 97% of the Jews of Greece were killed in the Holocaust. The occupation of the country from Crete through the Peloponnese to northern Greece, when any Greek would stand up to oppose the Nazi regime, if you wounded a German officer in a, uh, an attack, uh, 10 Greeks would be killed. If you killed a German officer, 50 Greeks have been killed. And I've been at the site, a place called Kalavrata uh, in the Peloponnese, where several hundred Greek men and boys were killed in a massacre. To live through all this and then to find yourself in a civil war with the country divided between 1946 and 1941, houses divided, brother against brother, some cases father against son, a war that you're still, they are still feeling the ramifications of this war in Greek society today and in Greek politics to come through all that 
with the victory of the democratic forces and then decades of poverty as the poorest country of Europe to come into the European Union to join it and to join the Eurozone was a great accomplishment. And that makes the Eurozone crisis even more bitter, I think, for the Greek people. Another crisis that they have to confront. I think the worst is over on that crisis, which largely of Greece is making. The Germans, now the new power in Europe, the primus inter pares in the European Union, have made the decision better to have Greece remain in the European Union. That's the correct decision. That's the decision that Barack Obama supported. And to work with Greece and to try to help the Greek people sustain their democracy and return at some point to prosperity, although that's going to be a very, very long road back to economic normalcy and prosperity. But still, in 2010 and 2011, I wouldn't, given, I wouldn't have given great odds that Greece would have remained in the European Union. I think it's best for the Greek people. It's best for their future that the younger generation in Greece will remain truly European to the core with a future inside the European Union. But that, I think, is not the greatest challenge to democracy that the Greeks and the other Europeans are facing. I think it's the impact of the refugee crisis, perhaps not the refugee crisis itself, but what it will do the, to the fabric of the European Union. And here, I think that Greece is a victim. And it's not the fault of Greece that five to 6,000 poor, unfortunate Syrian refugees are arriving in Lesbos and other Greek islands every day. That EU regulations and EU policy says that the receiving country has to bear the burden financially for those refugees. It makes no sense that Greece and Italy and France and Spain, because of their geographic location and their proximity to North Africa and the Levant, should have to bear the financial costs of the largest refugee flows that we have seen since the Second World War. And here Greece needs the support of the Germans and of the European Union, financial support. And they need the support of thousands of volunteers to cope with this tide of refugees coming across the Aegean Sea in flimsy rafts. You've seen all the horrid images. People dying on the high seas. If they make it to Greece, they are processed in Lesbos or another island. They're taken up to, to the port of Piraeus, most of them now by train or truck all the way through northern Greece to the Bulgarian or Albanian borders. And they have one goal in mind, to get to Germany, to get to Western Europe, to get to the countries that are promised to take in Germany alone, 800,000 to a million refugees this year. So Greece needs help with this crisis. And the Greek people and the European peoples are going to have to reflect on what this crisis has meant just over the last three months. Because the, the Europeans had put together a European Union of open borders, of the free movement of peoples from Athens to Berlin to Paris to London. And you've seen how the Europeans have reacted to this crisis, the Serbs and the Hungarians and the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Poles have largely shut the doors to Syrian refugees, sometimes flying the banner of Christianity, saying that these are Christian countries and that Muslims are not welcome. The Slovak foreign minister said infamously two months ago that they would not create mosques, build mosques in Slovakia. They did not want Muslims in their country. And so the consequences of this massive influx of people, more than a million in the 12 months that will end 
just in the early part of, of 2016, perhaps double that amount as the Syrian civil war continues over the next year. You see the Europeans going in different directions. Some saying that the borders should be kept open, that this is a moment of moral crisis, and that it has to be met with morally correct acts, keeping doors open, accepting refugees, helping poor people who are victims of a horrible civil war. Others saying that Europe shall remain a Christian club. What will be the impact of this crisis on Europe's democracy, on the centrality of the Schengen regime, of the free movement of peoples? Will we begin to see the borders closed down in Europe to people fleeing a civil war that has produced in a population in Syria of 22.4 million people, 12 million homeless. And I must digress for just one minute to say, how about us? How about the American people? How about the governor, Governor Charlie Baker? How about our legislature? What is our responsibility to these refugees? In every refugee crisis since the Second World War, the United States has always led. And in fact, traditionally, we've always taken about half of all the refugees of any crisis. Half. Why? Because we have the strongest economy in the world. And we're a very wealthy nation. And we're a big country, 3,000 miles across. And we are an immigrant nation. That's who we are. And we're a refugee nation. And for some of our presidential candidates, who are themselves sons, of refugees to say, shut the doors, dig a moat around America and pull up the drawbridges is un-American. And it defies the essence of who we are as an immigrant and refugee nation. We've always had our doors open. And it was Republican President Gerald R. Ford who, after a very bitter war against the North Vietnamese, when that war was over, we took in hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese refugees, and they've been one of the most successful refugee groups in the history of the United States. And so, like the Greeks and like the Europeans, we face a moral crisis. And I can't tell you how chagrined I was to see that our state was one of the states that said, slam the door shut, make it in the current bill before the Congress almost impossible to bring those people into our own country. So tonight's a conversation about democracy. Democracies should reflect the will of the people. I'll bet that most Americans, if asked, if they reflect upon their own heritage, whether it be Irish, in my case, Greek, Greek, in George's case, what should we do now? Should we dig that moat? Should we pull up the drawbridges? Should we keep all the doors shut? Should we say to 12 million homeless people, we won't even take 10,000 when it's the responsibility of the United States historically to take several hundred thousand Syrian refugees? I think I know the answer, and I hope our politicians will listen. Because to be a democracy, of course, is to reflect the will of the people. And we are big-hearted, as are the Greek people, and we are generous, as are the Greek people. I don't think the democracy in Greece is imperiled. I think Greece has gone through the greatest crisis since the end of the military dictatorship of 1974, nearly losing their place in the Eurozone and the European Union, facing default, seeing once again the brightest of the Greek people, the younger generation, leave Greece for jobs in Zurich and jobs in Berlin and jobs in New York. 
Other generations of Greeks had to see that happen. We want to see a return to prosperity and a return of the Greek people to build their country again. There's no better way to think about the future of a democracy than to reflect on its past, and that's what the American school is all about. And to see this institution now, since 1881, devote itself to scholarship and devote itself to the idea that by learning a little bit of the history that John Kant presented to you tonight, we might be a little bit smarter about how we exercise our moral and political responsibilities today. Is there anything more important than that? So I would ask you to support the American School. Uh, we're going to stay behind and be happy to talk about the school and its mission. We'll be happy to meet all of you to do that. It is such a great pleasure to be here with John Kant. Uh, and with all of you, thank you very much for listening.